Anasso. Any questions about any of the shamatha practices? Yes, Biata. And do we have a microphone? Um, for the microphone, be, for the recording for the podcast. Share your... You can go ahead. Fine. Um, my question is um, regarding lucid dreaming, but I referred actually to uh, meditation, but I want to describe it in a lucid dreaming state. Um, I think you brought up uh, a long time ago this this question, but I didn't get the got the answer for it. So you are in a dream and you are lucid. You are really aware that all appearances are just appearances. But then people in a dream, even in a lucid dream, talk to you or do things which you are not actually uh, doing or in your will. So where's this coming from? Where would you say it's coming from? Where, where's the only place, place it could be coming from? I, will, I won't quite say that. Where would you think it's coming from? Yeah, I would probably guess you would say from the substrate. That'd be a good guess. Yeah, um, yeah that would be when I said, where else could it come from? That's what I had in mind. Uh, generally speaking, of course, that's where it would come from. Uh, and then if one wanted to play with this, there's this uh, phrase from uh, Marvin Minsky called the society of mind, the society of our mind, that it's, it's not multiple personality disorder, it's just that the mind has many, many facets to it. We have, what is it, 50, 51, 52 mental factors. We have, you know, we, we take on many roles. You know. And so the mind is not one monolithic entity. And of course, what's a lot of what is happening in the mind is taking place in subconscious, on a subconscious level. It's been known for a long time, not only from Freud, but long, long before that. And so, um, so when you're there identifying with one persona within the dream, but you could be with a crowd of people, or just with one other person, whatever, or with animals and so forth, um, that these are all stemming from one substrate consciousness, you know, but then teasing forth different aspects of that society of the mind. Um, male, female, old, young, quirky, uh, kooky, intelligent, dull-witted, and so forth. Um, and it is very intriguing that uh, even when you're lucid, they're not simply puppets on your string, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, in a lucid dream, especially as you become rather adept in it, you train in emanation and transformation, a particular phase of dream yoga, uh, you can change people, you can transform them, uh, you know, because they're only appearances. You know, you know they're only appearances of your own mind. You can ch uh, change one person into many person, a human being into a frog, a frog into a turtle, and so forth. So there's a lot of malleability, but it comes by, that is, it can happen voluntarily by simply designating and learning how to do it. It's also true, though, as in the case of reading something. This is one of the classic state checks uh, from Stephen LeBerge's research. Within the dream, if you're, um, if you're wondering whether you're dreaming or not, you can take some printed matter, read it, or printed anything with a script, uh, read it, take it out of your line of sight, bring it back in, the second time you read it, the chances are 85% that it will have changed. Okay? And then if you take it out again, then it's 92%. It keeps on going 
half, half, halves to never, of course, getting to 100%, but getting incrementally closer to 100% certain if it keeps on changing each time, you know? Or no, if it, if it, um, no, it's the other way around. If it changes, then you know it. But if it doesn't change, then you can be 85% certain that you're not dreaming, right? And then you do it again. If it still doesn't change, now you can be 92% sure you're not dreaming, but you could still be dreaming. So taking that as an example, well, it's not just for printed matter. It's really for anything. So you could be focusing on somebody and then turn your attention away so they're out of your, out of mind, out of existence. Because the only way they have any existence is if they're appearing to you. They have no other existence apart from that. And so you turn away and they could be somebody else. Or they could be older, younger. They could have long hair, short hair. They could be all kinds of variations. So, but now having said that, uh, is that the only possibility? No, it's not the only possibility. Um, especially when we consider that the, the space of your mind, the dhammadhatu, dhammadhatu is a good word, relative dhammadhatu, this, the space in which mental events take place, doesn't have any clearly defined border. That is, it's individuated. It's not a collective unconscious, not in the Buddhist understanding. Um, but you can't... It, it's not like a bubble where you can say it, it goes out this far and then it just stops, you know. It's certainly not located inside a skull. That's the silliest idea. Um, and so one can say at the very least that it's porous. If it doesn't have any clear-cut boundaries, then at the very least you can say it's porous. So could it happen that you could have a visitation in your dream by some, some being who is not simply a fiction, a creation, a concoction of your own substrate consciousness. In the Buddhist understanding, the answer is yes. Yes, it's true. It's possible. Um, I've, I've, a number of my teachers and people I've met have had um, appearances of beings like Tara or Padmasambhava uh, appearing in the mind, Avalokiteshvara appearing in the mind, um, gurus appearing in the mind, the Dalai Lama appearing, or Yang Tanabachi appearing. So not uncommon. Um, and then, one, then the question comes up, was that really Yang Tanabashi? Was that, was that really the Dalai Lama? Was that really Padmasambhava? Uh, the Lama, I'm thinking of three. Three, yeah. Three of my Lamas that I know of um, have had appearances of Tara or Padmasambhava appearing in their dreams. But they're quite careful to not make any claim. They just said there was an appearance of Padmasambhava. And then something quite remarkable happened or an appearance of Tata, and she spoke such sweet words of wisdom, you, you kind of wonder, well, who else would that be besides Tata? You know? um, so could it happen that Tata herself, female manifestation of the compassion of all the Buddhas, could it happen that Tata could actually appear in your dream? The answer is yes. I mean, of course, I'm speaking from the Buddhist perspective. The answer is yes. It takes a very pure soul, very pure vision. But yeah, not just an appearance. Now, if you have an appearance of Tata or Dalai Lama or Anybody, uh, any teacher of yours, appearing in the dream, can you be quite certain that that is, the, uh, that, is that being? Absolutely not. No, it could be just a figment of your imagination, taking on the form of the Dalai Lama, like a cartoon. So one must be very careful there, you know, very discerning, just fully intelligent, fully intelligent, right? And be very cautious about making claims. Could it happen that other beings who are not, you know, kind of like, spiritual beings, but simply like a relative, 
somebody or somebody you know or just some or some spirit, you know, something like that. Could that happen? That some other being, some human or non-human being, a deceased relative, who is just you know has deceased, died only a couple of weeks ago, could it happen that a deceased relative in the bardo could appear in your dream? The answer is yeah, it could happen, as well as other beings. So it's porous, it's porous. But then how do you know whether it's just simply a creation of your own substrate consciousness, or whether there's something more to it. Difficult to say. Difficult to say. But I know that, uh, I remember a, a comment by uh, Jeffrey Hopkins, who's also one of my revered teachers, uh, outstanding, really absolutely outstanding Western scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, certainly among my very finest living, way, way beyond my league, you know, way beyond. Um, and he made a comment a long time ago. He taught me, taught me Tibetan grammar many, many years ago. Incredibly kind and extremely good teacher. Um, but he made a comment a long time ago, raising the issue about whether the um, teachings of the middle way view, the middle way view, the Madhyamaka, the teachings of the perfection of wisdom, for example, whether these were really teachings of the Buddha, the historical Buddha, like the Pali Canon, Majjhima Nikaya and the Diga Nikaya and so forth, many suttas in those collections, or whether this was a creation of later individuals, very bright, very intelligent, maybe very spiritually realized, but somebody else. And uh, he's a very, very grounded, of course, incredible, very, very intelligent man, and you know, contemporary man. And he said, well, those teachings are so profound. Who else but a Buddha could have taught them? I thought that's a pretty good answer. I, I, I'll, I'll go along with that one. Uh, there's, there's two ways of... Uh, I've heard two, two phrases that one can see in juxtaposition are quite interesting. And that is, uh, the teachings of the Buddha are true. Okay? Teachings of the Buddha are true. And then, those teachings that are true are teachings of the Buddha. Somewhat different nuance. And so, if the perfection of wisdom teachings, the, the, the various sutras, uh, if these are true, not like just there are moons around Jupiter, that's true, but if they're true in the sense that if you take these to heart, you practice them, you can gain realization of emptiness, and that realization utterly purifies the mind of all mental afflictions, uh, and opens up the capacities of consciousness extraordinarily uh, and takes you right to liberation and even to perfect enlightenment. Who else but a Buddha could have taught it? I mean, he should have. It, it, it could be true, it might be true, it must be true, it is true for me. That kind of thing, you know. Who else could do that? You know? Other people can find the moons of Jupiter, but who else but a Buddha can actually give teachings that will take you all the way to that state of realization? And my own feeling is, uh, so that was Jeffrey Hopkins. I find that very helpful. Because historically, you know, it's clearly, I totally understand people who are following the Theravada tradition or simply scholars of Buddhism and so forth. And they said, look, um, the, the accounts from the Mahayana Sutras are so inc incredibly far-fetched that we simply cannot take that as historical fact. They may be very interesting, very profound, very meaningful, tremendously beneficial, had enormous influence on Asia for 2,500 years or so. But historically, oh, come on, we, we, we can't go along with that. We're historians. Where's the evidence? You know, I understand that, totally. Um, 
But if one views those sutras, those teachings, the Buddha teaching to uh, how many, I don't know, millions of people on Vulture's Peak when he's giving some of the perfection of wisdom teachings, you know, millions, of, I've been to Vulture's Peak, it's not big enough. <laughs> it's a little not. But the point here is that it's a, a systems approach. And that is if you're looking at this from a Theravada perspective, where frankly pretty much there is a, a view of metaphysical realism, and metaphysical realism means there's a real physical world out there. There was a real individual who looked in a particular way, and that was Buddha Shakyamuni. And he had a certain number of disciples, and they were really there. And the world's really out there, and your, body, and your five skandhas are really here. The one thing that's not really here is a self that owns all of those. You know, that's not really here. But your body, your skandhas, they're, they're inherently existent. The environment around you is inherently existent. Come on. Look, how many times do you need to pat the cushion to say, hey, it's really there? And I can say, you want to pat that cushion in the dream? Bongo bango. But in any case, you know, it's, it's a very reasonable position. And from that perspective of metaphys metaphysical realism, uh, that there's a real world inherently existent out there, independent of anybody's conceptual designation, and independently of anybody looking at it, it's there. That is the underlying view of most, but not all, modern scientists. Um, then from that perspective, it's really far-fetched to think that the Buddha was teaching millions of people on Vulture's Peak. You know. But that's not the view of the perfection of wisdom. There are two primary ways that the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras are interpreted. Chittamatra, mind only, in which there's no external world at all. Physical world out there, not at all. Right? Everything consists only of displays of the mind, uh, which means it's all relative, completely relative. And the other one is Madhyamaka. So it's Chittamatra and Madhyamaka. Those are the two ways of interpreting the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Cutter Sutra, and so forth and so on. Um, and in both of these, there's, both of these refute metaphysical realism in terms of the existence of an absolutely real physical world out there. And so from that perspective, then, uh, the Buddha on Vulture's Peak, for example, or we go to Kala Chakra, the, the, the Buddha teaching Kala Chakra. And the claim is it was a historical Buddha right towards the end of his life in a particular place in the south of India. And he created a mandala, Kala Chakra Mandala, and he taught the Kala Chakra Tantra to the king of Shambhala, and, you know, myriad beings there, and, it was all, and he, was, he was appearing as Kalachakra, and so forth and so on. Historically, I mean, again, Theravada, okay, my goodness, now you've gone into cuckoo land, right? Uh, Raj, for, for first, as if Rajgir wasn't enough, now you've got to Kalachakra land, which king of Shambhala. You know. um, but, if, but if the teachings of the perfection of wisdom are true, either interpreted in Chittamatra fashion or Madhyamaka fashion, then there is no objectively real universe out there. There's no objectively real subject, subject in here, uh, especially in terms of Madhyamaka. And so what people were witnessing on, Raj, in, in, on Vulture's Peak in Rajkir was from pure perception. Pure perception. In which there's no absolute space, no absolute time. And don't worry about the geographical dimensions or spatial dimensions of Vulture's Peak because it has, has no spatial, inherently existent spatial dimension. And from their perspective, this could be a vast arena. Just take the example of Shambhala, just to kind of, I'm just kind of floating all over the place here. Why not? It's fun. Got time to, I wouldn't say time to live, not time to kill, right? Um, Shambhala. How about Shambhala? Ever heard of Shambhala? You might want to visit there sometime. Could be a very good place to visit. You know, it's... Looks like it's in the heart of Asia, someplace north of Tibet, probably north of Mongolia. Um, but visible only from pure perception. You won't get it with a satellite photo. 
Uh, Gurdjieff, it seems, tried to get there in a caravan, didn't make it. Although the claim is uh, that multiple people have made it there physically from India, but through a whole process of transforming their, transmuting their bodies and minds, whole process of purification. So that pure, 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 and then suddenly, boom, there they are. Uh, and they've made it to Shambhala with their bodies. They don't die first, they're with their bodies. And a number of accounts of that happening, taken very seriously by many, many people in, in Central Asia, Mongolians, Tibetans, and so forth. Um, so, but again, in the heart of Asia, but you can walk right through it and you're not, you're not, not you're, and you won't see anything. You'll see desert, or you'll see whatever, you know, ordinary people see. Um, how big is it? 960 million villages. <laughs> with, the, with the center of, of Kalapa, the capital, and it's shaped really rather like a mandala shape. And it's a human realm that is a pure realm. And it was the king of that realm that came down to India, requested the Kalachakra teachings from Buddha, brought them back, and so forth. The story goes on. But um, so from a Theravada perspective, now we've just gone into, you know, uh, fairy tales, sheer fairy tales. Um, but what if not only the perfection of wisdom teachings actually give rise to profound states of realization, transformative, illuminating, giving rise to a many paranormal abilities as well. And they're from the perfection of wisdom teaching and teachings that you don't find in the Pali Canon or you find only seminally in the Pali Canon. And what if the teachings of Kala Chakra, the stage of generation, stage of completion practices, what if those, when practiced properly, actually give rise, lead to the realization of Buddhahood in one lifetime, which is what they're designed to do, like Dzogchen. What if? What if? Now what do you say? Are we still laughing? Ha, 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 what a fairy tale. If they actually work, and if they actually work, who else but a Buddha could possibly have taught the Kala Chakra how to achieve enlightenment in one lifetime? Who else but a Buddha could possibly do that? It'd be crazy to think that anybody besides a Buddha would teach that. I can't remember your question at all. <laughs> but I found that really interesting. <laughs> so, with pure vision, you may have, oh, a number of lamas have had uh, very clear, very, very clear lucid dreams of Shambhala. Not going there physically. But uh, there's one book, to, uh, Book of the Tibetan Elders, I think it's called. I haven't read it for years, but I have it in my library. Book of the Tibetan Elders, and I'm pretty sure it's, it's uh, just short narratives of a number of lamas and uh, Tibetan elders. Uh, and I'm quite sure there's one in there. Might have been Kamchur Rinpoche, can't quite remember. But lama, one lama said, I saw it. I saw Shambhala. And it's just like it's described. I saw it in a dream, crystal clear. You know? um, so that could happen. That can happen. In the advanced stages of dream yoga, very advanced dream, after you've done trans transformation, emanation, all of that, uh, then one of the finest things you can do in your dream yoga practice is to have so purified your mind that you actually do encounter a Buddha. Or you go to a pure land, like Sukhavati, the, the pure land of the Buddha Amitabha, and you actually go there. You know? um, so, again, people listening to podcasts, you might be thinking, oh, Alan's really lost it now. We, kind of, we followed him for a while, but man, I was waiting for this to happen. He's lost his marbles. That's fine. I'm very happy. With marbles or no marbles. 
I'm happy guy. <laughs> I don't care what people think. I really don't care what they think at all. As long as they're not, you know, imprisoning me, putting me into a, a mental asylum, I wouldn't like that much, you know. But they're leaving me alone, so I get to be harmlessly crazy as I like. So there we are. <laughs> you had a question about shamatha too? That just, I just, I, 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 never mind. <laughs> never mind. I don't want to ask. <laughs> That's the, that's the way to get people to really shut up, you know. <laughs> good, we're off to a good day. Enjoy your day. See you later.